The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. Thank you for listening. For more information on Story City, you can find us online at storycitychurch.com or on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Story City Church. Good morning, church. How are we enjoying this hazy California fall this morning? (laughs) It'll be 80 in about three days, so enjoy it. (laughs) So my name is Brittany, this is my husband Josh, and we're going to be doing scripture reading today, and we're going to do things a little bit differently this morning in the best way possible. First off, we're so grateful that he gives us his word this morning. So what we're going to do, I'll be reading scripture in English this morning, and my husband will be reading it in Spanish, and after we say this is the word of the Lord, we're going to ask you guys to actually participate and say thanks be to God. So we're going to have a little bit of congregation participation this morning, just to wake you guys up. So please stand for the word. I will be reading John chapter 16, verses 13 through 15, if you guys want to follow along. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. This is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. Pero cuando venga el Espíritu de verdad, él os guiará todo la verdad porque no hablará por su propia cuenta, sino que hablará todo lo que oyere y os hará saber las cosas que habrán de venir. Él me glorificará porque tomará de lo mío y os la hará saber. Todo lo que tiene el Padre es mío, por eso dije que tomará de lo mío y os lo hará saber. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You may be seated. Thanks, guys. Thanks, boys. Appreciate that very much. Morning, Story City. How are you guys this morning? Man, you guys are awake and alert. I love it. Fantastic. My name is Jared. And I have the honor and privilege of serving as one of your pastors here at Story City, and it is such a pleasure to be here. Happy Reformation Day. It's a great day. Yeah, absolutely. If you want to know more about what Reformation, yeah, that's right. You know, I was going to, uh, to, to dress in a suit this morning and be like, what happened? I thought we were all dressing up today, a little physical comedy, but instead I decided I would do a dad joke for you this morning. So here is my Halloween dad joke for you. Uh, I've decided that I'm going to dress up as a burnt steak. As a burnt steak. Yeah, that way that Elder Josh, when he sees me, can finally say, well done, Jared. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it's so bad. It's still bad. That's okay. That's all right. Well, we, uh, we love you guys. Here at Story City, we are for the story of God for the city of L.A., and, uh, and we live that out through our values. Our first value is that our story is God's story. Our story is God's story. What does that mean? It means that every twist and turn of your story has value to God and to us. It means that no one is too bad or too mad or too far from God for, uh, for God to value you and for us to value you. Our second value is that we are real and redeemed that we are real and redeemed. What does that mean? It means that we're always going to balance faith and failure. We're always going to balance faith and failure and that our limp is our legacy. 
Our limp is our legacy. Lastly, and that one that is particularly important for today is that we serve the neighborhoods that we call home. We serve the neighborhoods that we call home. What does that mean? It means that we will live in and learn from the cities we hope to impact with the gospel and that, again, for tonight, we will be more generous to our neighbors than they are to us that we will be more generous to our neighbors than they are to us. And I say that, again, because tonight we're going to live out that last statement through our trunk or treat event. We're going to be present and generous as we continue to get to know and love our neighbors here. This isn't just some social campaign. It's not something we do to attract people to the church. This is literally about living on gospel mission and saying, we're, we're, we're loving you because this is who Jesus called us to be, not so we can get something from you. And so as we continue to do that, we want to do that well. And we appreciate your generosity with your time and your talents, your gifts for bringing candy for all of these last four weeks, for signing up and decorating your car and dressing up and showing up to be here. It's not about just doing Halloween stuff. It's about truly living the gospel out as we love Jesus and we love people. This is what Jesus said. He said the two most important commands are to love God with everything you are and have. And the second, he said, was equal to it to love your neighbor as yourself. And so this is how we do that. All right, good. Before we move any farther, let's talk about our discussion question for the day. What is energy? I heard all kinds of different um, takes on this as we were talking, so I'm curious. What, what were some of the answers that you had? What is energy? Coffee. Coffee, okay. <laughs> energy is coffee. Yep, coffee does provide energy for sure. What else? I'll take the force. All right, I like that. That's the best part of what I heard there. And then I got lost in Star Wars. So it was a big hug. Yeah. A nap. Movement. Electricity. Warmth, the light within you. God. Here's, I, I, I was saying over here on the side, I think there should be no definition, just a picture of a junior hire. And you just open it up, and there's like, oh, that's, that's energy. That makes total sense. Or a toddler, for those of you with younger ones. Um, something's happened to me there. Here's what's really interesting. Energy and consciousness are two things we actually don't really have a definition for. We can't actually describe what they are. Do you know that? That we actually can't say what energy is. We can say the effects energy has on things. This is why we said naps, because, well, when I need more energy, I, I take a nap so I can recharge. This is why we talked about the things that we do that bring energy to ourselves, coffee. There's a lot that we can talk about the effect energy has on or that we can have on our own energy, but itself, we actually can't really say what it is. The same with consciousness. We can only define what goes on around it. We actually don't know what it is. And so this is kind of an interesting thing. I want you to kind of keep that in the back of your mind today because we're going to bring this back up in the sermon. So let's pray and we'll get back into our message. Father God, you are absolutely incredible. I thank you that you are so much bigger than us, that, uh, that, that you can come up with things like consciousness and energy, things we can't even really understand yet. And we know in ways we really can't fully understand you. And, and God, that's wonderful because if we could, then you wouldn't be much greater than us. And so we thank you that we can't fully understand you. At the same time, we know that you have created a world that you have intended to reveal yourself to us through. And so I pray as we go through today that we would understand you a little bit more, that we would be able to love you a little bit more, that we would be able to know you and be more passionate about you. And that as we live out our lives, as we 
go about doing the things that you have called us to do, that we would continue in every way to point to you. And so, Jesus, we ask that you would come. Make us aware of your presence this morning. You are always here. You are always with us. And we just don't always aware. So make us sensitive to your spirit this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, over the past few weeks, we have been looking at the persons of the Trinity. We started off with the Holy Father. We talked about the Holy Son. Last week, we talked about the Holy Spirit. And when uh, Josh kicked off the part of this series in the beginning, he said that the Trinity tells the story of the gospel. The Trinity tells the story of the gospel. The gospel is that God himself has come to rescue and renew all creation through the person and work of Jesus. The gospel then is the work of the Trinity, not just Jesus. I think sometimes we forget that, that the gospel isn't just Jesus. He's not just working on his own, but he says everything comes from the Father, and it, 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 Jesus is that rescue plan, and the Holy Spirit is the one that continues to renew us day by day. And we see Jesus pointing to this in the scripture that the Carpios read. Again, everything Jesus does, he says, comes from the Father. The Father and the Son direct the Spirit. So you can't have the Spirit without the Son. Now, I want to take a little bit of an aside today. We're going to get back into the Trinity specifically, but I do want to answer some questions that were brought up last week after service. I had some great questions for me, and one of them was uh, how all this works if the Trinity cannot be separated, then how does it work when Jesus said the Father had forsaken him on the cross? What happens there? How does that work? And then additionally, if God is not able to look upon sin, wouldn't he have had to separate himself from Jesus if Jesus was made to be sin? I thought those were great questions, and uh, I assumed that others of you would have that same question, so I deeply appreciated it, and I figured I would answer that today since I promised I would answer them. Uh, And so we'll get to there, but I think it will also help as we discuss uh, how the triune God matters to us and why this matters to us. So let's Answer the second question first. If Jesus was made to be sin and God can't look upon sin, then wouldn't the Father have to separate himself from the Son? This is where our understanding of the Trinity really has to come into play. Jesus, the Father, the Holy Spirit are not parts of the Trinity. They can't be divided from each other. They can't be separated from the substance of their existence. Okay, this means that he's not one essence that simply, simply manifests himself in three different ways. It's not a tritheistic relationship between three separate gods of a different substance. God is three persons of one essence. Three persons of one essence. If your head is hurting a little bit right now, I totally get it. It's fine. I completely understand. The Trinity coexists eternally, though. They coexist eternally. They have never been and never will be separated from each other. This means that Jesus' work on the, comp, uh, on the cross was accomplished by all three persons of the Godhead. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, now listen to this part, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish, blemish to God. So how did Jesus accomplish his death on the cross? Through the spirit. To cleanse our consciousness from dead works so that we can serve the living God. Another thing we have to remember is that God is omniscient. Omniscient, which means just big fancy word, meaning that God is all-knowing. He knows all things. Author Joseph Katz writes, Scripture also teaches that there is nothing God has not known, seen, or anticipated, and has intended a providential response to. God knows the beginning from the end. At the moment he spoke everything into existence, he knew every sin that would ever be committed and the remedy for it. 
If we take the metaphor that God cannot look upon sin in an absolute way, meaning not have any awareness or have nothing absolutely to do with the sin, then how did he know that humanity would continue to sin and send prophets to issue Israel a warning? If God cannot look upon sin, how could he ever deal with sin in a real and meaningful way? The metaphor, which is taken from Habakkuk 1.3, simply means that God does not in any way approve of sin and evil. But what about the verse that says that Jesus was made to be sin for us? That's found in 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. How do we reconcile that? Well, another author writes, Perhaps the best way to understand he became sin for us is to begin with what it does not mean. It does not mean that Jesus actually became sin itself. To posit such a theory denies all of Scripture. We know that Scripture will never uh, uh, fight against itself. It can never contradict itself. Scripture will always affirm itself. And so anywhere that we go, Scripture's uh, not affirming itself, then it's probably our uh, misunderstanding of Scripture. He goes on to say that Scripture clearly presents Jesus Christ as the one in whom there's no sin, 1 John 3, 5. The one who commits no sin, 1 Peter 2.22, and is holy, blameless, and pure, Mark 1.24, Acts 3.14, and Revelation 3.7. For Jesus to become sin, even for a moment, would mean that he ceased to be God. But Scripture presents Jesus as the same yesterday, today, and forever in in the book of Hebrews. He was and always is and always will be the second person of the Godhead, John 1.1. It does not mean he was guilty of actual sin either. Even the Pharisees who sent Jesus to Calvary knew that he was guiltless. In Acts 13, 28, it says, And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And so if he became sin for us does not mean Jesus was sin or a sinner or guilty of sin, then the proper interpretation can only be found in the doctrine of imputation. Imputation. This is a big Christian word, I know. But we see this affirmed in the second part of 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says, so that, meaning we have to pay attention to what came before, because of what came before, that happens so that we might become righteous, the righteousness of God. To impute something means to ascribe or attribute it to someone. To ascribe or attribute it to someone. So on the cross, our sin was ascribed to God. Meaning that the, the, the punishment, the, the, the responsibility for it got ascribed to Jesus. And in return, he ascribed his righteousness to us. The imputed righteousness of Christ. That's the really fancy Christianese term for it. The imputed righteousness of Christ. We now carry the righteousness of Christ, not because of what we did, but because of who God is. And so even though he had no sin in and of himself, he paid for our sin and debt to God. Our sin was imputed and attributed to him, and so he suffered. He took the just penalty that our sin deserves, and at the same time, through faith, that righteousness was given to us. And so now we can stand before God sinless, just as Jesus is sinless. And we are not righteous in ourselves. We are righteous because of the righteousness is applied to us. And so this is what it means. When God made him to be sin for us, means that Jesus, although sinless, was treated as if he were not. So let's go back to the first question, which was about the separation from God, as Jesus says on the cross, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? 
I think it's important to note that, um, that when rabbis were quoting Scripture, they would often quote a portion of Scripture to bring your attention to it, but knowing that, that they had memorized Scripture. This was actually a requirement uh, for, for, uh, for them as they were growing up to, to memorize and know Scripture. They would know large portions. And so when Jesus begins with this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is actually beginning Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And it would have uh, not just been to quote that one line out of, out of Psalm 22, but to evoke the imagery and to understand what's happening in the entire psalm. And while the beginning of Psalm 22 is this heart-wrenching cry of desperation, if you read the psalm, the entirety of it is actually about the reassurance of God's presence. It starts off with this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But, but the imagery in Psalm 22 continues to point for you are here with me. And it clinches it, catch rights, in verse 24, for he, God, has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. And so what Jesus is evoking Psalm 22, he's not just stopping with, God, you've forsaken me. He's saying, God, where are you in the midst of this? And then he says, I know you're with me. I know you're with me. You have not hidden your face from me, but you are still with me. You listened to my cry for help. That's actually how Jesus ends that statement. And so Jesus' divine nature, which cannot die, that's what divinity is, right? Can't die. And cannot be separated from the Godhead did not sin and was not separated. But Jesus also had human nature. Remember we talked about this when we talked about who the son was, that he had fully God nature and fully human nature, 100% of both. How it works, we have no idea. But his human nature can be subject to death. And even though his human nature was still sinless, death in itself is the separation from God. But because Jesus' human nature and divine nature also couldn't be separated... His divine nature entered into death of his human nature with him and was actually able to redeem, restore, renew, and rescue his human nature and bring him back to life. And this is how he experiences a separation from God in that manner. Does that make sense? You guys still with me? That's heady. It's deep. I know. Jonas, give me a thumbs up. Thank you, bro. We're good. So in death, Jesus experiences both the weight and the punishment of sin, the weight of death, but as God able to overcome death, his divine nature, his human nature, working together all through the Father and the Spirit, right there accomplishing them with him. And so this brings us back to our focus this week on the Trinity. And this brings up a couple questions. First, we have to ask, why the heck does it even matter? Right? This hurts my head. Why, why should I even think about it? What does it matter to me? We're going to continue to answer that as we uh, finish this sermon this morning. But secondly, I, I think um, it's, it's important because, as Josh said, the, the Trinity is a picture of the gospel. And the gospel always demands a response. And, and when I say demands, it doesn't just mean like it just sits there and waits for it. I mean that when we hear the message of who God is. When we experience God, we cannot walk away from God's presence unchanged. It does not happen. We may not always see it, but God is constantly working in and through us. And so the gospel always requires a response. We cannot interact with it and not be changed or moved in some way. And it matters because it's who God says he is, three in one. The question we then run into is, well, how does this work? How is this possible? 
And the problem lies in an attempt to understand a divinely inspired and God-breathed scripture that points to one God, as seen in scriptures such as Deuteronomy 6, 4 and Isaiah 44, 6, while at the same time also affirming the deity of Jesus Christ as God, John 10, 30 and John 14, 9 to 11, and the deity of the Holy Spirit, Matthew 28, 19 and 1 Corinthians 3, 16. That verse in Deuteronomy says, listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this verse in particular sets out the idea of a singular God. A God who has revealed himself as a jealous God who will not share his people with other gods. That's found in Exodus 34, 14. And yet, this singular God not only referred to himself in plurality, we see this in creation in Genesis 1, 26, 3, 22, and 11, 7. But he promised a savior, a Messiah, who would be, uh, his birth would fulfill an impossible multitude of prophecies. Jeremiah 23, 5 to 6. Because it's hard for us to understand, so many of us just go, I, I just don't want to think about it. I want to ignore it or deem it irrelevant or just dismiss it out of hand because it's hard to understand. But there's a huge difference between believing in the fact of something's existence and understanding how it exists. Let's go back to our conversation about energy or consciousness. I would say every one of us believes in consciousness, unless you're asleep right now. <laughs> yeah. We understand the effects of energy and we can believe in those things without even really being able to define them. And we don't always think about that because, well, energy and consciousness are just things that we sort of live with at all times. And we go, yeah, it's, it's right here in front of us. It, it has to make sense in some ways. And yet again, when we're being honest, we can't actually define those things. John Wesley said it like this. For instance, God said, let there be light. And there was light. I believe it. I believe the plain fact. There is no mystery at all in this. The mystery lies in the manner of it. But of this, speaking of the manner, I believe nothing at all, nor does God require of it me. Again, the word was made flesh. I believe this fact also. There's no mystery in it. But as to the manner of how he's made flesh, wherein the mystery lies, I know nothing about it. I believe nothing about it. It's no more the object of my faith than it is of my understanding. To apply this to the case before us, there are three that bear record in heaven and these three are one. I believe this fact also, if I may use the expression, that God is three in one. But the manner how, I don't comprehend. And I don't believe it. Meaning, he's not saying he doesn't believe in the Trinity. Meaning he's saying, I, I don't have to worry about how it happens. I, I believe in the Trinity. I just don't have to believe in how. Because God never reveals it to us. And the manner how, I do not comprehend and I do not believe it. Now, in this, in the manner lies the mystery. And so, I may, uh, it may, I have no concern with it. It is no object of my faith. I believe just so much as God has revealed and no more. But this, the manner he has not revealed. Therefore, I believe nothing about it. But would it not be absurd in me to deny the fact because I do not understand the manner? That is to reject what God has revealed because I do not understand what he has not revealed. Just as we don't reject the existence of energy or consciousness because we don't understand how they exist, we can't reject the Holy Trinity because we don't understand how three persons of the same substance can be separate and yet one at the same time. And this, again, this brings us to this understanding of now what does this mean for us practically? What do we do with this as people who are seeking to know who Jesus is, to apprentice Jesus? And so if you're taking notes today, this is our first observation for the day. We are the Imago Dei, the image bearers of God. 
We are the Imago Dei, the image bearers of God. We see that detailed in our creation in Genesis. God created man and woman in his image after his likeness. The invisible God created humans to be a visible display, a picture of who he is, how he loves, how he leads, how he rules. Those were things that we were all supposed to do that point to him. So then he, as the true and rightful king of that kingdom, placed humanity in charge to represent and reflect him. How have we done? See, when we sinned, we broke the relationship between God and mankind, between humans, and between us and the earth. And if you look around, you can tell that we have done a very poor job of, in the way that we live, reflecting back who God is and how he loves and how he leads and how he cares. So why does this matter? The answer lies in what it means to be the Imago Dei. We are called to be those reflections of God. And while we are poor representations of the image of God, we kind of get a sense of what it means through God's amazing and imperative love for himself in the way we're required by example and instruction to love others. See, understanding the Trinity helps us to understand our responsibility to biblical community. In other words, God is in perfect community with himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and so we are called to be in and to model biblical community as well. And so if you're taking notes today, this is the second observation for the day. We are created, bless you, for biblical community. We are created for biblical community. As God created the world, he proclaimed each creation is good. This is good. But the very first thing he declares as not good is man being alone. Now check this out. He declares mankind being alone as not good before sin even entered the world. And so this isn't an issue of something being broken that needed to be fixed. God is saying, hey, this isn't good. I want to make this right. He made this declaration from the start. Now, this is just, Jared, this is not the Bible, okay? I want to be really clear about this. But I think, Jared thinks, not the Bible. I think that God wanted Adam to experience something missing so he could appreciate the value of the relationship when Eve entered. I think in some ways he wanted Adam to experience a little bit of the loneliness that would come when Adam and Eve sinned and were separated from God because God declares those things as not good. Jesus experiences this in himself and his human nature when he's on the cross and he asks the Father why he has been Abandoned. Jesus bore the separation from God through death on the cross so we could experience life in true community. Jesus is separated so we could be brought in. Jesus is wounded so we can be healed. But this is why, this idea of community is why we're told to love the Lord God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. That's spirit, soul, and body. This is why we are told to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is Community. We can begin to understand then how Jesus can say the greatest commandment is to love God with all we are and have, but the second commandment is to love our neighbor as ourself, which he says is equal to the first commandment. It's in living out this biblical community that the church becomes the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us. I want to say that again. It's in living out Biblical community that the church actually becomes the hands and feet of Jesus to the world around us. It's in living this out, this holy reflection of the one true and triune God, the church may actually point to the God we are talking about and say, see him. 
in an era of the competition of the gods, living out our claim to know God is the greatest demonstration of our claim that God of the Bible is the true God. This is the mission of the church. But how do we actually live that out? If you're taking notes today, this is the third and final observation. That community requires commitment. Community requires commitment. Turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 2. The book of Acts chapter 2. The Bible is divided into Old and New Testament. If you open up your Bible right about the middle, that'll be the Psalms. That is in the Old Testament. The New Testament starts with the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the very next book after the Gospels is the book of Acts. The book of Acts. You could also call it Luke part 2 because that's really what it is. Luke part two. We will be in Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47. Acts chapter two, verses 42 to 47. It says this. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Let me set the scene for you. Jesus has been resurrected He has ascended to the right hand of the Father, and the Holy Spirit has come. 3,000 have just been added to the church's number, and they're now living out their faith together. Now, the word here in verse 42, translated devoted, means to continue to do something with intense effort despite incredible difficulty. It means to commit to something and follow through even though it isn't easy. So what were they committed to? First, they were committed to learning from the apostles. Well, what were the apostles teaching? They were following Jesus' command in Matthew 28. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, that word is, as you are going about your daily life, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So they are committed to learning about Jesus. Now remember, that word devoted means to continue to do something with intense effort despite incredible difficulty. So they're doing this even though it's hard. They're committed to this, to learning about Jesus. Secondly, they're committed to fellowship. Now this term for fellowship is more than just hanging out together. It's a term is koinonia. And it conveys a sense of commonality, of solidarity, of shared responsibility among households and individuals. It refers to a shared conviction that manifests itself as a mutual responsibility. It is the commitment to an ideal and the action necessary to carry it out. Guess what? It was just as hard for them to work with busy schedules as it is for us today. I'm sure they were running around to soccer games, right? I'm sure they are running around to all the different stuff that goes on. They had a lot of things going on in life. Fully get it. Everybody had responsibilities and commitments then too. And things took a lot longer. And so they are committed to, first, learning about Jesus. They're committed to koinonia. And they're doing this despite how much difficulty it is, but they're doing it with intense effort. 
This is honestly why this, this intense effort, this talking about living on uh, mission together, this family biblical community thing, is exactly why we give of our finances here. It's exactly why we believe everybody should be in a missional community group. It's why we're building a culture of discipleship and leadership development. We pool our time, our money, our energy, our talents, our resources, all of who we are to see the, the mission accomplished together as those who are on mission in biblical community together. It's kind of like the Fellowship of the Ring. With the nine members that make up the Fellowship of the Ring are committed to both the destruction of the one ring to rule them all, but also get to Mordor and do whatever it takes to get there, even if it costs them their lives. In the same way, the early church is committed to following the instructions of Jesus and helping each other along that path, no matter the personal cost, they are committed to following the way of Jesus together. Third, they were committed to the breaking of bread together. Now, this term, breaking of bread here, refers to two different things. It's referring to sharing meals together, but it also means to participate in communion. Now, communion then didn't look like what it looks like now. It was this uh, dining together. As they sat for a meal, they were to formally remember what Jesus had done for them when they broke the bread and drank the wine of their meal. All you Southern Baptists go, <gasps> So they were committed to eating together and drinking together while constantly reminding themselves of why they were together and what Jesus had done for them. And lastly, they were committed to prayer. They were committed to prayer. The Bible talks a lot about prayer and how it's to be a regular part of our life of following Jesus together. Prayer is simply talking and listening to God. Some of us are good at the talking to God. We're not good at the listening to God, but prayer is absolutely both. And so the meaning then would be that they devoted themselves to the fellowship that was expressed in their mutual meals and their prayer life together. But again, that word in verse 42, translated devoted, means to continue to do something with intense effort. The early church recognized this was difficult. This wasn't something you did on our own. This isn't something that's natural. This is why we don't do it on our own. We do it together as church. Commitment requires sacrifice, though. As they lived this house out, the early church balanced their love for each other and their love for their neighbors. They didn't live in some holy huddle where it was just them and they kept all their non-Jesus following friends in one circle and their Jesus following friends in another circle, but they mixed the two constantly without changing or compromising who they were. And this commitment to loving and supporting each other was lived out so well, the Bible says they had favor with all the people and the Lord was adding daily to the number. The way that they lived amongst their non-Christian and Christian friends in the way that they did everything. They loved each other so well, it constantly pointed back to Jesus. And guess what? Today we have the exact same calling because we are still the Imago Dei and God is still triune. We must commit ourselves despite the difficulties to community. And community needs to mean the same thing it did for us as it did the early church, a commitment to learning and following Jesus' teachings, a commitment to each other and the mission God has given us in this community and the commitment to sharing meals or remembering Jesus is the reason for community and for praying together. So make a commitment to hang out and get to know people. Break outside of yourself. Start or join a missional community. It's the best way to learn how to live out the community, commitment to community on a weekly basis. Make a commitment to invite someone from church to your home for a meal once a month, somebody really different than you. Throw a party and invite church friends and non-church friends. And don't forget your pastor. 
build the kind of relationships with people where you can be real, a place where you can expose your brokenness and feel safe enough to be honest about who you really are with people who will care about who you are becoming. Remember, it wasn't easy for the early church either, but they saw this as not a what's in it for me moment, but a long-term investment in the mission God has given this church. We need to make that same commitment today. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, you are incredible. You are so good. I thank you that everything you do helps us to understand you and know you more. I thank you that you are triune, that you model community for us, that you show us how it's to be done, and that we get to enter community with you with others. I thank you for family. Lord, family is never perfect. In fact, oftentimes we're pretty broken and jacked up, but you are faithful and good regardless. And so we thank you that you continue to make us to be who you have called us to be, that we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We love you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.